Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That sounds different, doesn't it? As I'm excited to begin this new book and series with you, many have expressed uh, their excitement in starting this book. I've had someone even come up to me this week and tell me that they had three notebooks ready. And I said, I don't know what you expect from me. Just kidding. We do have a lot to say today, and I'm a little bit under the weather. So we have, uh, you have to hold on tight, and maybe you'll use those three notebooks today. But I believe that this book comes to us by the Lord's leading and by the Lord's providence. And so I'm eager to jump right in. And I think this book will really encourage you. I think this book will help you to reflect on God's great work in your life. I think this book will encourage our church and reflect on all that God has done in such a short amount of time. And I think it'll make you more faithful in your faithfulness to God and your love for God. It'll give you, I think, joy and courage and even help you to be free of past patterns of sin. And so let's start as we always do by, by reading the text. And this morning, we'll only cover verse 1. And we're going to allow this to serve as an introduction for us into this great book. So a bit of an introductory week. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, what we're seeing here is Paul's opening introduction and salutation. His opening introduction and salutation in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. That's what's here. And as was typical in regards to the form of letters in Paul's day, this letter begins with an introduction and it begins with a greeting. But when compared to other introductions of Paul's other letters, this one has unique features. And rightfully so, we're going to see that soon. For good reason, it has very unique features to it. But as we trace this simple greeting, we can come to understand some things that are really necessary for us to know. They're necessary for us to know if we're going to truly apply and understand the content of this letter in the coming days. So let's use the three elements in Paul's greeting here, the three divisions of the text here, to serve as our headings, and they're going to guide us through the introduction of this book. So those 
elements, let's label them as this. Number one, the ministers. Number two, the ministry. And number three, the motive. The ministers, the ministry, and the motive. And through all of this, I think what we'll see and what we'll find 1 Thessalonians to be is an encouraging letter to an excellent church. An encouraging letter to an excellent church, and that's what I've introduced this message as, entitled this message as today. So let's look at the ministers. We see in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. This is who the letter is from. That's pretty simple and straightforward. This is who is writing the letter. And you say, well, there are three names listed here. Are they, are they playing past the pen? And all of them are writing here? No, it's, it's not uncommon for Paul to include others, mention others with him in the introduction of a letter, but especially in this case, as we'll see, this is very fitting, and we'll see why soon. But Paul is the one writing this letter, and how do we know? Well, we see, for example, Timothy is mentioned in the third person. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. It says, and we sent... Timothy. We sent Timothy. And so Timothy there mentioned in the third person in chapter 3, verse 2. But Paul identifies himself as the writer in the first person in chapter 2, verse 18. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Because we wanted to come to you, I, who? Paul. Again and again, but Satan hindered us. However, throughout this entire book, we see the personal pronoun we. 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 And so what we can understand is Paul is writing this letter alongside of and on behalf of these fellow ministers of the gospel. Now, who are these three men? You've probably heard their names before. And why are they sending this letter to this church? Well, as we look at the names of the three men on the list, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. The first name there is Paul. Paul. And Paul, you know him. You know him probably pretty well. Paul's a Greek name meaning little. How'd you like that to be your name? And uh, you're familiar with Paul, his Hebrew name being Saul. And he was a former Pharisee who persecuted the church. He persecuted the church of Christ according to Acts 8.1, Acts 9.1, 1 Corinthians 15.9, Galatians 1.13, Philippians 3.5 through 6. So he was a Pharisee who persecuted the church of Christ. He was converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He was called to be an apostle, according to 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. 
He was called to take the gospel to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's one who made a significant impact in his three missionary journeys. Three significant missionary journeys. Now, the second name listed here is Silvanus. Silvanus. The second name here, Silvanus, is one that you probably also know. His Jewish name being Silas. Silas, which you see him being called really throughout the book of Acts. And though the apostle Paul always refers to him as Silvanus, but Silvanus also refers to himself as Silvanus. If you remember, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, at the end of the book of 1 Peter, when Silvanus identifies himself as the one who composed Peter's letter on Peter's behalf. He composed Peter's letter on Peter's behalf. He was a colleague of Paul. He was a Jew by birth, a New Testament prophet, according to Acts 15, 22. He was a leading man among the Jerusalem Christians. Excuse me, sometimes I'm having trouble breathing up here. But he was a leading man. He was a trusted servant alongside the apostles. A trusted man, a trusted servant, a trusted minister. He delivered the letter from the Jerusalem council, according to Acts chapter 15, verse 22. And like Paul... Though he was a Jew, he was also a Roman citizen. A Jew and Roman citizen, according to Acts 16, verse 37. This man was chosen by Paul. And when they separated from Barnabas and Mark, remember that? He was chosen by Paul to accompany Paul on his second missionary journey. That marks the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 15.40. They separate, and boom, that second missionary journey of Paul begins. And the second missionary journey of Paul really spans from Acts 15.40 to when Paul settled in Corinth in Acts 18.6, which really, by the way, encompasses the mission to the Thessalonians and the writing of this letter. It's all wrapped up in Paul's second missionary journey, as we're going to learn. And after that second missionary journey at Corinth, when we're told about Silas and Timothy coming to Paul, the information about Silvanus with Paul from that point on is non-existent. So Silvanus probably at that point became an associate of Peter's. An associate of Peter's. Silas was known for some things. He was known for enduring beatings. He was known for being imprisoned. He was known for being attacked by mobs. And he was known for risking his life in service to Christ. According to Acts 15 and Acts 16 and Acts 17. And so this man is a faithful servant. The third name listed here is Timothy. And you're familiar with him. He's a young man. A young man, a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother right? 
And according to Acts 16, his mother was a Jewish believer and his father was a Greek. And he was converted. How was he converted? He was converted through Paul's visit in Lystra. And he was later circumcised in that same place by Paul and Silas. So Timothy is is kind of a, a student to both of these men. And he was chosen, Timothy was, by Paul to accompany him in Acts 16, 13. Now, this is important, and you guys know this, but Timothy is Paul's son in the faith, according to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. In Philippians 2, verse 2, he's one whom Paul loved, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 17. He was left behind by Paul in Ephesus and Philippi, and he was entrusted with ministry there. And he had the gift of preaching and teaching. And Paul says this about Timothy. Listen to this in Philippians 2, verse 20 through 22. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. Everyone else is seeking their own interests, not that of Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So those are the writers, friends, the senders, the co-laborers, the ministers behind this great letter. Now the question remains, Why are they the ones writing this letter and why are they doing so together? Well, this takes us back to the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, verse 40. So turn with me to Acts chapter 15, verse 40. We've got quite a bit of work to do here. Acts chapter 15, verse 40. And allow me to help you understand some important background. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put a map up on the screen. I don't want you to stay glued to the map. I want you to stay glued to me and glued to the text, but I I want you to be able to refer back to it. Just refer up to it as I'm taking you through the text, okay? So here's what happens. Eyes on me. In Acts chapter 15, verse 40... As we see here, look at this. Paul chose Silas. He departed, having been commanded or commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So in Acts 1540, Paul takes Silas. He separates from Barnabas and Mark. He goes through, and you can see here Syria and Cilicia, and he's strengthening the churches there. And then in Acts chapter 16, here, verses 1 through 5, Paul and Silas come to Derbe and Lystra. And when they come to Derbe and Lystra, that's where they pick up Timothy. That's where they pick up Timothy, who, by the way, like I told you, was probably converted there just a couple of chapters ago. And when Paul and Barnabas first visited that region... And he's probably from that area. So they pick up Timothy and Lystra. 
And here's what happens in God's great providence, starting in chapter 16, verse 6. This three-man missionary team. Now listen, this is important. This three-man missionary team is prevented from going southwest into Asia. They're prevented from going north into Bithynia, all by direct divine intervention by the Holy Spirit. And they came from the east, and so they got one direction to go here. What direction is it? It's west. One direction, it's west. This is God moving the gospel westward. This is God moving the gospel westward, which I'm thankful for. And this would begin, by the way, for the evangelization of Europe. So they go from Mysia to Troas. From Troas, Paul receives a vision Again, direct divine intervention. And the vision says, come to Macedonia. Come to Macedonia. So verse 10 reads in chapter 16, if you look down at your text, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this was the call to take the gospel to Macedonia for the first time. Verse 10 reads, we, look at this again, verse 10. And when Paul had seen a vision immediately, what? We, who do we know is writing this letter of Acts? Luke. So Luke is with them on this part of the journey. He becomes the fourth man. And so then what happens is crossing the Aegean Sea, two-day journey, if we just follow this story along in Acts, they arrive in Neapolis and they go immediately about 10 miles into Philippi. And this is all right here, and you can read it. They go about 10 miles into Philippi, and from Acts chapter 16, verse 12, to Acts chapter 16, verse 40, we see this successful mission at Philippi that lasted about two months. And Paul and Silas leave behind Luke and Timothy in Philippi. And uh, remember what happened in Philippi? Paul preached the gospel powerfully there. And as a result, at the end of their time in Philippi, here's what happened. Paul and Silas were seized. They were dragged. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into prison. And their feet were fastened with stocks. This is the end of their time in Philippi, and this is what happens to Paul and Silas. And God then shows himself faithful. He shows himself true to advance the gospel. He miraculously releases them by an earthquake. And then realizing that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, the magistrates become afraid. They apologize, and they asked Paul and Silas to leave Philippi. And what do they do? Well, first, they do a little bit more ministry, it says. And then they depart. And from there, they took about a 100-mile walk, about a five-day's journey along the Ignatian Way, through Amphipolis, and through Apollonia. And they weren't preaching there, probably because there was no Jewish synagogue there. They were probably hurting from what just happened to them in Philippi. And they came to the major center of where? Thessalonica. 
Thessalonica. And they come to Thessalonica and Timothy would join them later, Paul and Silas from Philippi. And there, these three men start the church in Thessalonica. These are the missionaries. These are the church planters. These are the obedient Christians. These are the faithful. These are the servants. These are the ministers of the gospel. The ones who gave their lives, left their homes, were willing to suffer persecution, sacrificed their possessions, went to places that were difficult, endured all things for the sake of the gospel, obeyed the Lord's commands, followed the Holy Spirit's leading, made their whole lives about this mission to go to a place where people had not heard the gospel of Christ, to please Christ and to save sinners and to lead Christians and to start churches, all to glorify God and to see people saved. Churches were planted, planted and, and they were counted faithful. And now, these three are in Thessalonica. Now, one more note here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see these names listed. And by the way, these are the exact three who write Second Thessalonians. And it's important to note that this introduction is about exactly the same. And maybe it's in descending order based on rank of the names. But what's important to notice is this. As we think about these three men going there, starting this church, think about this for a second. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, as he introduces himself and these ministers, you know what he doesn't use? He doesn't use his authoritative introduction stating his apostleship. And even more interesting that he only does this for three churches. And they're all in Macedonia. The Philippian church and the two letters to the church in Thessalonica. In all other letters, he uses this authoritative title as an apostle. And the explanation is clear as we've seen where he's going. We've seen these uh, this place he's going to minister to, and we'll see the result in a minute, but the explanation is, is that at this place, his authority is not questioned. In this region of Macedonia, his authority is not questioned. It speaks to his relationship with them, their faith, which we're going to see in a moment. It's not that Paul is not criticized, because he is, and he's going to adamantly defend himself. We're going to see that in a minute but not his authoritatively representing the Lord Jesus with his truth. That's not in question in Macedonia. And so these are the ministers, and this is where they are. Let's look at the ministry. Number two, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter one, and I'm gonna bring you back to Acts here in just a minute so you can keep your finger there. But if we go back to 1 Thessalonians, Chapter one, we read, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so this letter is to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But before these missionaries arrived, it would be a good question to ask, what was this place like and how did this church come to be? You should know that. You've got to know that because as we look through this letter, you've got to know what's been going on in this place and what Paul is going to encourage them with. So let me tell you a little bit. Thessalonica was the largest and most important city in the Roman province of Macedonia. It was, it had about 300,000 people and its location was ideal. Its location was very strategic and very ideal. And therefore, to be honest with you, you cannot overestimate the importance of the gospel coming to this specific place. It's amazing to think through God preventing Paul and Silas from going to Asia Minor at first and heading over to Thessalonica because this place was very strategic for the gospel really to go west and east. And so coming here, we see and we understand about Thessalonica, here's where it was placed. It was placed at the head of the Thermaic Gulf off the Aegean Sea, and this was a significant port for commerce. It was a significant port, and it played a significant part. And through the port, so you got this, this gulf, Thessalonica's at the head, and through the port is a major highway called the Ignatian Way. And that highway was the major highway of the Roman Empire. And it connected them with their eastern provinces. So Rome being in the west, and this highway connecting them with their, with their provinces in the east. And I'll put up another map for you for just a minute. I want you to see this. You can th see Thessalonica there. By the way, this is a map on my phone. Thessalonica is one of the few places visited by Paul which still exists today. And so you can't see it, but Rome is to the west if you, by you looking at it to the left. And if you go east to the right, you have the eastern provinces of Rome and all the way into Asia. And so... Today, Thessalonica is still one of the uh, Greece's most important cities with a population of about 400,000. In 1941, the Nazis captured and executed nearly all of its 60,000 Jews. And so you can take the map down, but you see there at, at that, at the uh, Thessalonica, at the head of that gulf there. And so listen to me now. This is a major highway that's running through it from the east to the west, which, it allow, which would eventually allow for the gospel to spread along this highway east into Asia Minor and then west, eventually re reaching Rome. And so this city was extremely strategic and important. It was founded in 315 BC by the general of Alexander the Great, and listen to this now, because this is important, okay? In 168 BC, Macedonia was conquered by the Romans. In 148 BC, Macedonia became a Roman province. In 146 BC, Thessalonica became the capital and the seat of the Roman government in all Macedonia. 
And because of their favor with Rome and its leaders, though it was the seat of their government in this province and in Macedonia, Rome allowed it to be a free city, meaning that it was self-governed and it was unoccupied by Roman troops. And this is important. This is a good working relationship between the Thessalonians and Rome. And this is important because as we'll see in a moment, when the Thessalonians hear of this gospel message, that Christ, the King, who is this that's being proclaimed here? They wanted them to stop immediately from proclaiming this because what they thought Rome would hear would be that there is another earthly king who's challenging Caesar and Rome would step into what is their free space. And so they were afraid of how it would affect their relationship with Rome. They weren't listening to the truth. They were just afraid as to how it might affect their earthly benefits. And so this city is full of all kinds of people. Listen, it's full of the upper class. It's full of the needy. It's full of the poor and everywhere in between. It was full of all kinds of different people, Romans, Greeks, Gentiles. It was full of officials, upper class, like the leading women who are gonna be converted. It's full of traders. It's full of merchants. It's full of all these people here who have come to this important city, but most importantly, probably, is that this became a home for Jews. Jewish merchants, probably. And there was enough Jews here, influential Jews, to have their own synagogue. Enough influential Jews to have their own synagogue, which would be exactly what Paul would be looking for to start a ministry. And so it was typical for Paul, the synagogue would be the place where he would start the ministry, then he would go out and he would send out into the Gentile population, which leads us to these three missionaries' ministry at Thessalonica. And we pick off where we left off in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Turn to Acts 17, verse 1. And this is the account. You say, what's the account of the church being planted in Thessalonica? This is it. Okay? This is it. So they're there. This is the place. Now, what happens when they get there? Acts 17, verse 1. And I'll read to verse 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to where? Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, the th- and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. I love how that's phrased. Not a few. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, 
seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. I'm sorry, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So this is it. This is the planting and the starting of the church in Thessalonica. Paul explains here the Old Testament to the Jews in the synagogue. Now listen close. Just as Jesus did, remember this? At the end of Luke's gospel when we saw this? Just like the New Testament prophets would do? Just like the New Testament would do? That's why 1 Thessalonians 5 even speaks of not despising prophecy. There will be this clarifying word from the New Testament prophets explaining the Old Testament more specifically. And you are no longer to believe in a coming Redeemer, but Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and as the Christ. And so this is what Paul would do. He was in the synagogue and he would explain from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. You have to understand that the Jews have no category for this. They've got no category for a dead Messiah. They, what they expected in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies was God's coming king, the anointed one, to conquer the earthly oppressors. At that time, it was Rome. How could the Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one, the coming king, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, the conqueror, how could he be killed by the Gentile oppressors that he came to stop? This can't be the Christ. He can't be the Christ. How can he be the conquering Messiah and King? And this explanation, by the way, was also what the writer of, for instance, Hebrews, this is all over the New Testament, but of Hebrews is explaining. How could the one, listen now, how could the one who was higher than the angels die? How could he die? That's what's being explained there. Well, very simply stated, for a little while, he was made lower than the angels to become our substitute to sanctify a people, to be a savior, to be the leader. And so it says in Hebrews chapter two, and so the explanation is this. This is what would be being proclaimed to the Jews in the synagogue. The enemy is sin. And Jesus had to die. And it doesn't disqualify Jesus as the Messiah. It actually qualifies him as the Messiah. It qualifies him, and he had to rise. And that also qualifies him. And this is what Jesus had to do to accomplish God's plan, which was salvation for sinners. Remember, Jesus explained this a number of times in Luke's gospel. The Messiah had to be rejected and suffer and die and be what? Raised. 
And they didn't understand. They even pushed back against this, this idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says that a crucified Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews. A crucified Christ, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't get over their superficial fleshly expectations of Christ, and they did not believe. But not some of these Jews. Think about this. Some of these Jews in Thessalonica, these, this section tells us in Acts 17, they got it. They were persuaded, it says. Think about this. Your expectations of what the Christ, the Messiah is to be. And Paul comes in and demolishes all of that and says, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and the Christ. And they were persuaded. They left behind all they ever knew and thought, and they believed Paul. And then they gave their lives for it. I mean, that's hard. And so it says in Acts 17, also some of the God-fearing Greeks did that, Gentiles who would also attend the synagogue. And not a few, right, of the leading women. And 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, as we'll see as we go through this book, tells us that even idol-worshiping Gentiles were converted. So Paul's got everybody included. Paul took the gospel to the synagogue. He took the gospel outside the synagogue. He took it in between these three Sabbath days outside. There was Jews converted, Gentiles converted, God-fearing Greeks converted, upper class converted. And most likely, even though it says Paul was there for three Sabbath days, he was most likely there for longer because in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 and 2 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul describes how he worked not to be a burden to them. 1 Thessalonians 2.11, Paul describes how he pastored them. He didn't just evangelize them, he also pastored them. And so he was there with them for some time, shepherding them. But even more telling, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us that he was there long enough to receive two gifts from Philippi while he was there. So he was there for some time and these people became Christians. They became Christians. But Acts 17, as we looked at, the Jews became jealous. They took wicked men, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, they attacked the house of Jason, who was probably housing them, they looked for these ministers who were converting their people, they dragged out Jason and some of the new converts, imagine that. You're just persuaded from everything you ever knew and you're being dragged out of your house for what you've just professed. And they described this threat as a threat to the earthly king, Caesar, the implications of what it would do to their relationship with Rome. They took their money, and then in chapter 17, verse 10, they left. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue again. So they go to Berea. And these Jews, you guys know the story here, these Jews were more noble than those of the Thessalonians. And in verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 11 says, 
They were more noble and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. So Paul would do the same thing, explain from the Old Testament how Jesus was the Christ. And they would look at these scriptures, the Old Testament, and they would see if what Paul was saying was true and they were convinced. And so these, there would be converts made here and, uh, and they would, um, come to Christ. And so many believed, but then look at what happens in verse 13 of chapter 17 in Acts, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. I mean, these guys are relentless, huh? So they come here to Thessalonica and they oppose Paul's message again, and so what happens is Paul's escorts take him to Athens, okay? This is how the story's going. Paul goes to Athens, and, um, and so he goes to Athens, and his escort, um, the, well, first of all, they left Silas and Timothy behind at Athens, but when Paul is escorted to Athens and his escorts are leaving, he says, make sure to send Timothy and Silas back to me right away. And though when he's waiting, look what happens in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he goes into the synagogue. I mean, he's just an evangelism machine. He's by himself. And so at some point, Timothy and Silas arrive in Athens. And when they arrive in Athens, we're getting close here. Paul sends them right back out. They come into Athens and Paul sends them right back out. Where does he send them right back out to? He sends them right back out to Macedonia. Timothy to go check on the church in Thessalonica and Silas probably to go check on the church in Philippi. By the time Timothy and Silas join Paul back in Athens, before, well, Paul's about to send them back out. It's probably been about three months since they left Thessalonica. And so Paul sends Timothy back out, Silas back out, and Paul goes to Corinth. So now, Timothy in Macedonia, in Thessalonica, Silas in Thessalonica, uh, in Macedonia, in Philippi, Paul in Corinth. And why did Paul send Timothy to Thessalonica. Well, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to come back to Acts one more time, just very briefly. We'll go back to 1 Thessalonians. Why did Paul send Timothy at this point to Thessalonica? That's the question. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. Here's what Paul says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope and our joy or a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. 
Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we, were dest- we are destined for this. I was scared that this persecution was going to make you walk away from the faith, You got to understand, though, we're made for this. We're made for suffering. Verse four, for when you were, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That's why he sent it. St. Timothy. So as we finish up our time in Acts, just flip there real quick. Acts chapter 18, verse five. He goes there, Timothy does, to check on their faith. Acts chapter 18, verse five. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from where? Macedonia. (laughs) Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Paul's there by himself in, in Corinth now, and he's still going into the synagogues proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And Paul, I mean, Silas and Timothy come back from Macedonia after going to check on this church. So what does Timothy report back to Paul? Well, let's look at it. Go back to 1 Thessalonians we're done flipping. Chapter three, verses six through 13. What does Timothy report after he's gone to check on the church? Verse six of chapter three. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for you, for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith, What a great report. What a great report. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct you, direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And Timothy's report, listen now, is so encouraging that Paul writes this letter alongside the other two ministers almost immediately now from Corinth. Second missionary journey's over. Silas probably joins Peter. This is the place. This is the time that he's writing 
this is where he's writing from sometime probably around spring of 50 AD or winter of 51 AD, making this probably the earliest of Paul's letter, if not the second earliest. So this is who's writing, to whom he's writing, and what prompted his writing? His great report that he received from Timothy. And I just want to make mention of this to just preview this great church in this great letter. In verse one of chapter one, it says to the church of, Thess- of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here now. To the church of the Thessalonians, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the called ones, the chosen ones, the elected ones, literally the ones who have been elected out, the chosen out, called out. You're a true church, he's saying. To the church, to the called out ones, you're real. You're real. You're a real church. You're a consecrated church. You're truly believers. You're the elect. How does he know that they're the elect? How does he know that they're chosen? Well, He's going to tell us, he's going to list these reasons. I'm not going to get into them now, but in chapter one, verses four through 10, he's going to list these reasons. Look at verse four. It says, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because. And then he lists all the proofs of them being chosen ones. And so they are a church and not only a church, but they're a church of the Thessalonians. Meaning in Thessalonica, out of all of those living in Thessalonica, out of being part of that group of Thessalonians, they were called out. Among the group of people there, they are the Christians. They're the chosen ones. They're the people who have come to know Christ. And really, this is a testimony of of God's keeping. Paul is confident in their faith Because those who remain and last, it's clear that God has chosen them. They must be his. They must be real. He says in verse one, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot there. The preposition in only on the front end of the phrase denotes equality between God and Jesus. But what Paul is emphasizing here and what he's encouraging and affirming is that they're saved. To the called out ones in God the Father. They have an unalterable union with God. They are fully accepted by God. God has become their God. Their salvation is in him. Their hearts have been tuned to sing his praise. They love God. They know God. And this has, of course, happened through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they are also in the Lord Jesus Christ says here in verse one, the title that's being used here for the Lord is very um, strategic. It says, the, it, Paul writes, the Lord Jesus Christ, his full title being here, the Lord, speaking of his divine sovereignty, Jesus, speaking of his humanity, Christ, of him being God's anointed one, the Messiah, combined, this all brings to mind God's saving work through Christ. They have been saved by Christ and by his atoning work. You know, the scriptures, they speak of the believer being in God and in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. 
and they also being in the believer, it's, it's this sharing of divine, eternal life. And so Paul feared that because of persecution, temptation, suffering from the Jews and the Gentiles, they would abandon the faith. Their initial decision would prove to be nothing. Now you can relate to this. Imagine making a disciple, sharing the gospel with someone. They come to know Christ. You invested them for a little while. And for some reason, you're torn away from them. They move or you move. And it's been a few months and you're just, you're just kind of fearing the inevitable that they've walked away from the faith. And then you talk to them and they're stronger than they were when you left them. It's stuck. They're believers. That's the picture here. They're such a young church, but they're such a faithful church. They've come so far. They're doing great. And this is really part of the reason that I believe I was led by the Lord to teach this book because I, I think that this parallels our church in so many ways. This is one of the few churches which Paul gives mostly encouragement, very little correction. And, and this is a healthy, faithful, true, consecrated church. They're committed, they're submitted, they're reproducing, they're repentant, they're serving, they're patient for the Lord's coming. They've received the word with gladness. They're firm, they're, they're God-pleasing, they're loving, they're prayerful, they love God, they're loved by God. Chapter one, verse four, Paul says they're loved by God. Chapter one, verse six says that they receive the word with joy. Chapter one, verse seven says that they're examples to people everywhere. Chapter one, verse nine says that they've turned from sin. Chapter one, verse Verse 10 says that they're always ready for the Lord's return. They've endured hostility and oppression. Chapter four, verse nine says they've loved each other so well. And listen now, they have so much to look forward to. Chapter five, verse 24 says that God is going to keep being faithful to them as he has been and keep changing them. And so Paul says this in chapter one, verses 19 through 20. Look at this. We're almost done here. Chapter one, verse 19 through 20. I'm sorry, there's only 10 verses there. This is uh, chapter two. He says this, chapter two, 19 through 20, for what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before Lord, Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. It's like a man in the military who's got patches on him to prove that he's served faithfully he served his country faithfully. And what Paul's saying is, you know what the proof of my faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ is? You. You. you you're what I'm gonna present to the Lord. And by the way, that's true of me and all of our elders. As proof of our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're gonna present you. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the gem on the crown. And so he says, he says, you're my joy, my glory. This is the ministry. The minister is the ministry. Let me just touch on the motive and then we're done. Go back to chapter one, verse, at the end of the verse. He says, grace to you and peace. Now this is a standard Greek greeting, but listen, there's more here. Charis, the word grace, it goes beyond just the standard greeting. It's meaningful. Paul is wanting God's unmerited favor to continue on them. Think, think about this. Just think closely. Grace had been received by them in Christ at the point of their salvation. 
salvation, nothing owing to their own account. They've done nothing to earn their being chosen. God's grace has saved them. And what Paul is hoping for here is that this grace would just continually issue privileges in the lives of these believers. The benefits of the favor of God and the blessing of God in the life of the believer. Just continue to experience being in Christ. And then he talks about what the result of that is. What is it? Peace. Peace. Peace with God, of course, and their salvation. But when they are receiving all they have in Christ, satisfied in him, experiencing all the undeserved privileges of the Christian life with God in Christ, they also have peace in their heart. So this is the general overarching hope for them. But if this is just kind of general, what specifics to this letter will Paul encourage them in and write to them about? What's his hope for them? What is he gonna do here if they're doing so well? Well, let me just list out about six of these. They're not on the screen, but he's gonna express number one, encouragement to them. He's just gonna encourage them. He's gonna express his love for them, his affection for them. He's gonna affirm them, his desire for them. Number two, what he's gonna do is because of their faith and how faithful they've proven to be, he's just gonna encourage them to keep going. And I wanna show you this because it's just a repeated theme. You can see it, chapter, uh, chapter four, verse one. Just turn there and look at it. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so, what? More and more. In chapter four, verses nine through 10, it says, now concerning brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this what? More and more. In chapter five, verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Number three here, he's going to encourage them to stand firm in the face of opposition and persecution. This church is experiencing opposition, persecution, hostility, the same thing that drove out the three from this place. And Paul feared that some of them would be filled uh, would walk away. And so he's got to encourage them to stand firm. Chapter two, verse 14, look at it. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. You guys are suffering. You got to stand firm. You're facing hostility, opposition. People are claiming things about my character. That the gospel is a threat to their lives. Stand firm. Number four, Paul was also, as I just mentioned, being personally accused of having the wrong heart and a wrong motive 
and a lack of care for the believers. So Paul is gonna vig- uh, vigorously defend his integrity and the rest of the minister's integrity. And you can see that in chapter two, verses one through four. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We're just being faithful. You can question our character, but we're just being faithful. And then number five, Paul encourages them not to turn back to sin. In chapter three, verse, uh, chapter four, verses three through five, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he's encouraging them to break free from these patterns of sin. And sixth and lastly, and then we're done here. Um, They've obviously been taught eschatology. And so Paul's gonna correct some misunderstandings and he's gonna teach them more. But many think that, I think that this book is an eschatological epistle, that this is what 1 Thessalonians is mainly about. It's not. It does include teaching here. But what's amazing is how simple, seamless, and practical this teaching is in light of the second coming, in light of the end times. His call is for them to is keep going. And this teaching is part of that call. It's very practical. This is all gonna come to an end. The Lord Jesus is coming back. And therefore, don't lose your joy. Don't lose your desire for God, your satisfaction in him. Don't turn away from the Lord. You have hope for the future. Continue in your obedience and faithfulness in light of the end time. So this is more characteristic of a pastoral epistle more than it is an eschatological epistle. And perhaps the key theme can be summarized in this. Turn to chapter three, verse 13. Here's what he wants. That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He wants them to become more holy. So this is gonna be an encouraging letter from the Apostle Paul to this great church who's come so far. And I know it's gonna be encouraging to you because I think there's a lot of parallels here to our church. And next week we'll pick up and start this letter really in verse, verse two. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and how it teaches us. There's so much here. And so some of it, so difficult to understand in, in your word. And yet, Lord, this book is so clear It is so straightforward. It is so obvious as to what's going on. And it's so encouraging to us. 
I pray that it would have its work in us, that we would feel Paul's love and affection. God, that we would be encouraged to just keep going and to do what you've called more and more. God, that it would help us to be ones who endure hostility and opposition. That it would help us to trust in the integrity of the word and the apostles and even in our leadership in the church. God, I pray that it would help us to look to the patterns of sin of the world and, call, and help us to turn away and not go back into those patterns. And Lord, I pray that it would help us to look to the very end, to your return, as to keep us faithful until the end. In Jesus' name, amen.